Epic, the show. I'll take it. <laughs> Sold. And uh, for whatever reason, the updated Skype didn't work well with my uh, audio recording software, like the thing that records the Skype call. And, and so everything I said echoed back to me about a second later. Oh, no, I've had that happen oh so many times. Oh, it's very distracting. I had to uh, to pretty much plug my ears and talk. I think as podcasters, we can say that there is something, or there are very few things, I should say, that are more disturbing than hearing your own voice while you're talking. You're just like, oh, oh, God, listeners, what are they, why are they doing this to themselves? You've heard of the interruption gun, haven't you? I actually haven't heard of the interruption gun. It's a it's a science it's a pop science thing that, that showed up in the science news uh, maybe two years ago I think it was made out of Japan they found out that a person can't uh, talk coherently if they hear the words they're saying spoken aloud uh, like a very short amount of time like a half a second after it leaves their their mouth like if there's this like instantaneous echo of what they're saying it kind of short circuits the, the part of the brain that constructs sentences. It's kind of like when somebody interrupts you and you're like, wait, what? Uh, I well, buy that. Continuously. So somebody made essentially, I think it was called like the interruption gun or something. Like that. It, was just, it would record and then play back whatever it heard half a second later. And... I buy that because the, yeah. the whole binaural thinking thing, maybe it's one of those things where you're, you can only focus on on either interpreting the the information that's coming at you or sending it back as language. Maybe that's the the deal that's going on. I don't know. Perhaps. That sounded almost science-y, which is probably appropriate. I have, uh... I should probably get around to to letting people know who you are. And, uh, if if we're on your program, I think you would have a lovely introduction a la the chairman and, uh, letting people know that physics was about to happen. So why, why is physics about to happen? Wait, wait, are we we are recording. I apologize for doing the stealth uh, intro there. <laughs> I promise not all of that will get make, make it into the show. <laughs> I just okay. wanted to make sure that, judging from our technical difficulties, that when we were recording, we were actually recording. <laughs> Groovy. But, but yes, oh. can, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and, and uh, introduce yourself. We're here with, uh, with Dr. Benjamin Tippett of the Titanium Physics Podcast, as well as the Greater Brachialope Media Network. That's right. Uh, my podcast is a well. Here's here's the thing. Uh, you listen to science podcasts, physics, astronomy podcasts specifically, and nobody ever wants to explain everything because explaining things takes a lot of time, and people are pretty bad at knowing where to set the level of explanation. Um, so usually, something somebody will be like, "Oh, um, well, we have this laser, and it works using quantum mechanics." Uh, don't worry about the details. It just uses quantum mechanics, and then things are superimposed upon each other, and this, these things happen uh, really great. And then, you know, big burst of light. And that's all you'll get explanation-wise. And it doesn't really sit well. Uh, and I think part of the reason uh, you hear a lot of people talking about how, you know, crystals and quantum mechanics means that anything can happen uh, in the, uh, what's it called, in the kind of the spiritual movement is a little bit due to physicists' desire not to explain anything at a deeper level. Hey, man, uh, we got, like, quantum entangled up in these vortices. Yeah, that's right. Stuff. I got quantum entangled with myself in Atlantis, 
And as a result, I'm sending myself messages, man. My knees are, uh, yeah, achy today. Um, yeah, so I said, hey, uh, I have friends. Uh, lots of these things can be explained. And interestingly enough, if you just devote yourself to the idea that you're going to sit down and explain something complicated, uh, you can use clever metaphors and, you know, fun tangents. And so uh, me and two friends of mine, uh, depending on the topic, I'll choose experts in their field, will sit down with a regular person who doesn't know any physics and will explain complicated physics to them in a conversation. And they, so the person will stop us and say, hey, explain to me what that word meant. And we'll say, oh, what, you don't know what the word um, um, differential geometry means? How, how is that possible? And they'll be like, listen, dude, I don't know any physics. And we'll be like, oh, right. And then so we'll explain the big stupid word. <laughs> Sorry, that's more boring than it sounds. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that explanation is pretty long. Pretty much it's me and uh, two of my friends, depending on who, and we talk about crazy physics at a level that you can't hear on any other podcast or radio show. And I really appreciate that. I think that the thing that was, was most compelling about the program is that it is very in-depth. Admittedly, I don't have very much of... Uh, of a of a science background in terms of of, uh, of a getting an appreciable understanding of, of physics, and so getting it to the point where where a layman can kind of pop in and enjoy what what's going on because you aren't talking down to them. I think that's that's widely true of the the science sort of podcast uh, as well. I mean, do you mind talking a bit about um, kind of the genesis there? When did you get involved with with Ryan and um, and the the whole Brachial Media Network? Because your podcast is, is one of, of a few that they have out there, kind of hubs on, on a sciency wheel. That's right. Uh, very early on, in fact, science sort of used to be alone in the universe. Um, and I'd written a paper called The Unified Theory of Superman's Powers, where instead of Superman having a thousand different powers, well, what, seven? Uh, he, you know, heat vision and... and, and, and oh, they've added one. Believe me, we were going to yeah. get to this. <laughs> right. Instead of all these, I only had one. So I posited Superman only has one power, and I get this email from the podcast guy, Ryan Hopf, and he's like, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? And I was like, um, okay. So I, I show up on his podcast, and the banter is pretty fun. Uh, and it, it, unbeknownst to me, it was a fairly early on. I think it's in the, in the first few episodes they made. And so they invited me back. Maybe uh, one of the other guests, one of the other co-hosts couldn't show up. I'd come in and, and fill, the, uh, fill the, the vacant seat to banter and talk about physics. And then um, as I was finishing my PhD, I decided that I would like to try my hand at specifically making a podcast just about physics. But physics! Physics! This is a thing that you do! And I think it's yes. also equally as fun, because you are probing and explaining to, to people like myself and our listeners kind of the mysteries of the universe, the big things that, that, that are out there in terms of, of questions. And such a, such a cool thing, and, and really thrilled to, to have you on because you've also tackled it from a pop culture angle, so that makes it immediately more accessible to our listeners. So if you wouldn't mind kind of talking, um, if you don't mind rehashing in a way, uh, talking about the, that single unified theory of Superman. So what, what is yeah. Superman's one power? Well, yeah, before, before I say that, let me just say, I think that a lot of, of young people get into science, physics, because there's, there's a hook. There's a pop culture hook. Um, you know, lots of people get into science and engineering from Star Trek and stuff, right? I, I think a lot of professional scientists kind of look down on this, uh, you know, wasting your time essentially writing papers for, 
you know, nerds to talk about their nerd science over. But I think that I, I, I've made, I've made a habit of writing these types of paper just because I think that people, it makes the science a little bit more approachable. Anyway, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about Superman. So, so, so the the so how, how many powers does Superman have? He can fly. Um, he's invulnerable. Um, let's see, what else is there? He has, uh, heat ray eyes, he has freezing cold breath, um, he's super strong, right? He also has an amazing power where if he puts on glasses, he's completely a different person. Totally indistinguishable (laughs) to the, the, the general public. That's right. Even to classically trained reporters in a newsroom. is that uh, Kal-El, Superman, has, has, doesn't have all of these different powers. Instead, he only has one power, and that's the power to change the, um, the moment of inertia, uh, the inertial mass, or the distribution of inertial mass in any object he's touching. Okay? In other words, the reason he can pick up Lois Lane up over his head is because when he touches Lois Lane, Lois Lane becomes lighter than a feather, and he can pick her up and throw her around. The reason he can jump up into the air and fly up as high as he wants is that without changing how strong his legs are, he can make himself as light as a feather. He can swim through the air, going faster and faster and faster by kicking off, by making the air he's kicking off of heavier than, much, much heavier than normal air. And so there are all sorts of things. You can even explain his, um, his super cold breath or even his uh, uh, x-ray vision in terms of the idea that he's changing the mass of objects in himself and, and, and outside of himself. And there's a variety of different little fun examples. One of them is that, uh, you know, Superman can lift up a car up over his head, right? Oh, absolutely. Now, if you lifted up a car over your head, let's say you, you, had, you decided, hey, I'm going to make a Superman machine, and you, you built a robot with a giant clamp arm. And you try to lift up the car with your clamp arm. The pressure from the clamps, the pressure of the car weighing down on the hands of the clamps would, would damage the car, right? Or if Superman's lifting up a building, he would have to stand under the center of mass in order to carry around the building without, without falling down and, and damaging the asphalt under foot. So clearly it's, it's more than Superman's just really strong. What I contend is happening is that he's changing the mass and the mass distribution of various objects, and that's why they're not damaged when he holds them up in the air from the corner. Anyway, it also explains how he can put on a pair of glasses and fool everybody. If you haven't noticed, uh, you, you're, you look different as you age, as the meat on your face hangs differently. When he, just, when he wants to be Clark Kent, he just makes his face meat hang extra heavy. As a reporter, I have jowls like Walter Cronkite. <laughs> and he can make his hair all floppy. Because, you know, if, if his hair is light, it'll be bouncy. If he makes the, the, the density of his hair really heavy, it'll hang down flat over his head. And he'll look boring and uninteresting and kind of jowly. Now, did you did you address the fact that in the Superman films, I'm putting on my nerd cap here, and I'm not even that are much you, of a okay, comic nerd. Are you about to say he goes back in time? No, 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 no. No, because okay. that's, that's discouraging. Everybody says that. He blew out the sun once, gosh. I mean, no, um, what about in the Superman films where, like, uh, his hair is a t- detached from his body and it's holding up a ten-ton weight? Ooh. I don't know, 
maybe it's also really strong hair. I mean, he is an alien. It might. It's not necessarily made of whatever our hair is made of. Keratin? I don't know. That was an appropriate science answer. High five uh, through the Skype. Well, yeah. I like this. I like this answer. <laughs> I'm good at making up explanations about Superman. Do you, I mean, I don't, I wonder, because it doesn't, I mean, I don't think that they, they have much of a scientific, like, they haven't tried, because there's, there's so many different eras of the superheroes, and you go from, just like, well, there are death rays, and he's battling death rays, uh, what does it shoot? It's a ray that shoots death, get over it. <laughs> to, to, well, he's got a, he's from a high-density gravitational planet, and so, um, uh, he can jump over stuff. And, sure. Yeah. And he's he's a plant or not a plant? Where I don't know. He gets his power from the sun. Stop arguing with us. We're comic book writers. <laughs> That's right. That's essentially what happens. I think that the explanation of him being from a really dense planet is a fun one, right? So his bone density would be much much higher than ours because it would need to support his own weight on his own planet, and that's why you can't break Superman's leg, and his fists are extra hard <laughs> when he's punching things. Uh, and it would also explain how he could jump and lift heavy things. This, act, this came up on the Science Sort of podcast as well. Uh, it doesn't explain the, 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 the heat rays, you know, or X-ray vision. I like Sorry. I like your theory, but they had a they had a question. I don't think that they got resolved on the Science Sort of podcast while I was listening to an episode where they were talking about this, and they were just like, "Is he photovoltaic? Is he photosynthetic? Why why does kryptonite make him as weak as a uh, or if he expends all of his his power, he's as weak as a human being? Shouldn't he still have like greater muscle and bone density because he's from a high mass world, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Like some of the things aren't too consistent. And since you wrote your paper, they've added a new Superman power. I don't. Do you know about this? What? No, what? What? They just added, in the recent issue, they've added a new Superman power. He's dating Wonder Woman, is it really? <laughs> kind of. I mean, I guess it could answer the, one of the lowest lane questions. Um, but it's the, the idea is that he can now essentially uh, go uh, KO Ken on folks. He can expend all of the solar radiation that he has gathered in one kind of atomic burst. But wow. that... But that for 24 hours, he will be, um, it takes him 24 hours to recharge, in which time he is completely vulnerable. So he loses his invulnerability. And Batman, very snidely, is just like, hey, just saying, I know where you live. Clark. Batman says that a lot. Yeah, he's like, I, Even before. I, I could totally, I, I'm just saying, I, I, I know a secret, and like, you're totally vulnerable and stuff, and we're in the Batcave. Like, I'm just saying, I could kill you. Just, just want to let you know. I mean, he doesn't say that, but it's implied. Yeah, I could kill you, Clark. I feel pretty cool about this. <laughs> K.O. Ken. Yeah, but that's, that's essentially what it is. It's just like a big K.O. Ken or like a solar flare thing that he does now. And it's it's a, a lot of, I don't know if a lot of fans like this idea, but it, the, the, they were really hyping it up because they're like, this is the first new Superman power in 30 years since um that other thing. Maybe. Heat vision. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, he's had, he's had other things. There was a, in the 80s, um, in one of the, the alternate comics, they gave him the idea that, again, related to kind of photosynthesis, that he could draw the solar radiation from, from surrounding plants to use as a healing factor if his energy was expended. Right, he did that in the Batman Returns comics, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, they did that there, and then they haven't done that in any continuity. But that Batman Returns Superman is now in the Multiversity comic that they've got coming out. Like, every iteration of Superman is essentially battling itself. There's a cover of um, that a friend of ours is drawing, where the uh, that Superman, kind of old man Superman from the '80s, is uh, is crushing the windpipe of uh, 
of 90s Superboy. <laughs> and it's kind of, it's cool and disturbing at the same time. I know, right? There's even there's even a multiversity now where what if um what if uh, Clark Kent or Kal-El had landed as a baby in Nazi Germany instead of Kansas? So well, like that's not that's not good. No, not good at all. And <laughs> and so that's that's weak writing at that. Well, no, I think it's it's actually it's interesting because they talk about like the nature versus nurture element of it because they've had that kind of alternate universe where where all the superheroes were essentially the bad guys because instead of representing the kind of the ideals that they represented now, they represented them from kind of like the other perspective, from the Axis powers. Well, I mean, I, I read, what's it called, Red Sun, right? Yeah, and that's another take where it's like they, they represent thought, kind of the ideals of, like, the Soviet powers. Yeah, I thought that was really tight. I, I thought that was a really tight comic, but Nazi Germany, come Not on. so much. We don't want the Ubermensch to really be the Ubermensch. I'm just saying, it's a little weird. Yeah, but Nazi Germany wasn't even around that that long. Right. No, no, it's 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 just an interesting take because they're the multiversity idea, and this is another physics concept. So this is something that I actually had a segue for, but I'm bump. I promise okay. I I did mildly more planning since you are an expert in many fields, and uh, <laughs> uh, is that is that they are. Um, I, I kind of wanted to ask about that. So can you one of the? I mean, you you've tackled this I think a bit on your podcast. Yeah, uh, just such a cool concept. Like, where where is the rather than kind of trying to explain the whole the whole concept? I think because, like you say, that does take time and it's worth doing. And if they want to hear about it, they should go to the the Titanium Physics podcast because it's awesome. But just in general, like, how do you think uh, where do where do physics or where do physicists stand on the idea of, of multiple uh, multiple universes or, or like the multiverse theory? Physicists? That's a, it's an interesting question. Because um, so I imagine there are different camps, but is it now like a widely accepted belief, or does it factor into a lot of different different models for, for the universe? Yeah, we can, we can break the idea down into a, a bunch of different ways, um, because there are some things that lots of physicists would probably agree to if you, you know, caught them at a bar and for some reason injected them with truth serum. And there's other things that physicists are willing to entertain, but they probably don't believe in. Um, so, so first off, you, you might imagine, say, the Flash, who goes to between parallel universes, and by parallel I mean uh, coexisting, but somehow, you know, the Flash vibrates, and then suddenly he's in a, in a world where the, the sun is brown-colored or something, right? It's like, oh, the weird brown sun Earth, and then he vibrates more, and then he's on Bizarro World. Um, that also happens if you get physicists in a bar and they drink too much. <laughs> say alternate universe right um and physicists don't believe in it except quantum mechanics uh so there's this idea of the there's the multi multiple world interpretation of quantum mechanics um and the idea is quantum mechanics is very weird um and so it has no underlying philosophical framework. It's kind of unique in that, in a lot of in a lot of physics, is that there's no underlying story behind the mathematics. If you're going to learn quantum mechanics, you're sat down in a in a in a lecture hall, and they teach you the math. And if you ask questions about what's really going on, the prof, as a time-honored tradition says, just learn the math. Uh, you'll get an intuition about how things work by understanding the math and understanding how to use the math, but the math is the fundamental truth. We have no story behind it. Um, 
So there are various interpretations uh, of, of quantum mechanics. Uh, you might have heard of the Copenhagen interpretation that says that uh, superpositions of possibilities can coexist until the wave function collapses, right? That's the old Schrodinger in the box, uh, Schrodinger's cat. That's right? yeah, I think that's how we would box, manage. And the cat is both literally alive and dead. Both things are real until we open the box, the wave function collapses, and then the wave function as it collapses flips a coin and decides whether the cat has been alive the whole time or dead the whole time. And that's that's kind of tricky. And so some it seems like philosophers, some philosophers have really grabbed hold of the multiple world interpretation of quantum mechanics. And the multiple world interpretation of quantum mechanics says Instead of a wave function collapsing and deciding, yes, now I'm a cat, now I'm a dog, what they have are little quantum choices where they say, okay, uh, a quantum choice was made, and then two universes sprouted out, one where the cat was dead, one where it was alive. And quantum mechanics allows them kind of to interact, but maybe not, sort of, shrug. Uh, the problem with this is most physicists, like I said, when you're learning quantum mechanics, you learn the math first. Most physicists don't really buy into the ne necessary nature of a philosophical underpinning to quantum mechanics. They say, these laws are probably the laws. These mathematical laws are probably just how the universe works. There's no underlying story. We don't need an underlying story. And so it seems like most of the research done in multiple worlds, in many worlds, quantum mechanics is kind of... On the fringes of physics, you don't really see mainstream physicists talk about it. You see a lot of philosophers and philosophers of science talking about it. But phys physicists don't really care. So if you got a physicist in, a, in, in your truth serum bar and you force them to, add, to, to, to explain whether or not this multiple worlds quantum mechanics thing was really a thing, your physicist would probably say, no, I don't believe in that. So is that it, said, what's that? I was going to ask, so is it more about the idea that, that like the Schroden, Schrodinger, or Schrodinger's uh, cat uh, kind of... Yeah. Uh, kind of thought experiment is it is the idea more just talking about like the possible states of uh, of matter or like what may or may not be because i thought that was about about observing a particle and then when just the action of observing like alt or alters the the particle yeah well kind of so what will happen is you describe objects in i don't mean this to become a quantum mechanics lecture but in quantum mechanics you identify there are different questions you can ask, and the answer to almost every question you can ask isn't a continuum of answers. Like, so if I have a ball in classical mechanics, and I say, what energy did this ball have? The ball can have a continuum of energies. It can have anything from three joules to 3,000 joules continuously, right? In quantum mechanics, that's not the case. There's an echelon of different values it can have. It can either have one joule of energy, or two joules of energy, or three joules of energy. Um, and so there are a whole bunch of different questions, and each question kind of has its own echelon of different possible answers with nothing in between. That's why it's called quantum, because of this echelon, one or the other, or right? Anyway, moral of the story is that when you ask a question, um, sometimes we can describe the evolution of a state of an object in terms of it being in more than one state at the same time. So you can say that this ball... Before, between me observing it now and wherever next time somebody else observes it, it can be one third. It, 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 a third of it might be, uh, you know, um, one joule. Uh, a third of it might be two joules, and then a, and the last part might be five joules or something like that. It can, it can coexist in uh, the answer to the question, what, how much energy does it have, is uncertain until you until you observe it. But um, the result is that 
in essence, three different. Oh, I'm, I'm trying not to let this degenerate. I think I think the problem I think the problem is that it seems like you say it seems like such a confusing concept, which I'm fine with the the with the idea that it's. It might be counterintuitive. It's called science. Not every answer is going to seem intuitive. But yeah, well, it's like I said. When you learn the stuff, you learn it using mathematics. And so when physicists are trying to explain quantum mechanics, they're really at a loss because um, a, lot of the, a lot of the metaphor, a lot of the mathematical metaphor is also mathematical. We say this system evolves like this mathematically like this other system. We say this acts like... Um, a couple different bases, it has a couple different basis vectors, and then these basis vectors do this thing, and it makes sense to physicists. We're, t we're talking, um, uh, we're still, we can still speak metaphorically about what's going on, but the metaphors are completely, uh, when you try to explain to somebody else, they don't have this book of, of basic mathematical metaphors that they can consult. And so, you know, on our podcast, we, the quantum mechanics shows are by far the most difficult to, to make because they're the ones that we really need to stretch and come up with different metaphors and sometimes very specific metaphors to try to explain uh, a very specific part of quantum mechanics because, you know, exp explaining it is, is kind of tricky. Well, there was an alternate universe on this podcast where I let you continue and did not interrupt <laughs> your explanation of what where where the kind of the standing is on on the idea of alternate universes well, so if, if you, you wanted to continue alternate that. universes there's there's a couple ones that that, that are interesting and, and and you could probably get a physicist to agree to them that's what i would like to hear so what what are these instances i know right okay so um there's two of them one of them involves something called brain world and the, the idea is that the universe um we we look at the universe the universe has three spatial dimensions right it has a fourth dimension, uh, a time dimension, but three spatial dimensions. And of course, since uh, you know, if since forever, last, several hundred years, people have wondered, well, what if there are more spatial dimensions that we don't have access to? What if our reality is a sheet immersed in some bulk, some broader? Oh, uh, we get to talk about bulk beings, yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is a, this is an idea that's, that that. Um, it's, you can do some very interesting things with brain world model. We call our universe a brain, a membrane, a three-dimensional spatial membrane inside of a broader four-dimensional, we call it bulk. So there's another bulk dimension that we don't have access to because we are stuck to the surface of our brain. Like a, a spider caught on a spider web can't jump off or move. He's stuck on the surface of the spider web. So the, the nifty thing here is that in the broader sense of the brain world models, you can construct, I mean, it's tricky. These things are always very tricky and mathematically crazy, but, but motivated by string theory, which allows for multiple dimensions, what is it, 11 dimensions or 26 dimensions? I forget. Anyway, lots and lots of more spatial dimensions than we see. People have been asking again, is it possible that there's this bulk dimension or multiple bulk dimensions? And is it possible that there are other universe brains inside of the broader bulk that we can't ever touch or have access to, but they're out there like other other spider webs with other spiders on them? So in that sense, it's possible if you if you had a um, uh, a string theorist in front of you. Now there's a variety of different interpretations. So that's that's more parallel. That's more the idea, like the traditional idea that kind of got perverted for for fun science science fictiony type of idea. So that's more like the idea of a parallel universe because you're talking about universes that are inside this membrane or whatever. Other 
kind of planes of of the same of the same universe, but that are expressing themselves differently. Well, no. In this case, they're literally two parallel sheets. So in a, in in our case, we're stuck on one sheet, but there might be another sheet that's parallel to ours. It will never intersect ours. We can never touch anything on that sheet because we're stuck. And on that's our why sheet. it's parallel because they don't intersect. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so these are parallel universes. Um, but but you know, only a small fraction of physicists who are who are a type of um, string theorist would probably agree to the existence of that type of parallel universe. There's another one that's that's much more interesting, but the problem is it's not a parallel universe. Check it out. Me existing here today since the Big Bang. So the Big Bang happened. Boom. Gas collapsed. Stuff happened. Quantum mechanics. Rolling dice. Suddenly I'm here sitting in front of the computer, right? Mm. Yes. There is a very, very large number of coin flips, essentially, random processes that happened since since the Big Bang that, that allowed me to get here. It's like there's a there's a specific if it weren't for all of the choices that were made, if if one particle didn't come out spinning in a certain way, if um, you know, my parents didn't decide to meet that fateful night, whatever, I wouldn't be here in front of you. But the deal is, the probability of me being here, the probability of all of those things happening, it's infinitesimal, but it's finite. Okay? Now, the universe as we know it is infinitely large. Okay? And by that I mean spatially, it's infinitely large. Ah! there is an observable universe. When people talk about there are a jabillion stars in the observable universe, what we're talking about is we can see a jabillion stars, a jabillion galaxies, because there was the Big Bang. And so light hasn't been propagating towards us for an infinite amount of time, only 14 billion-ish years, right? But, you know, theoretically, if I had a spaceship that could go faster than light, I could move in any direction forever without hitting an edge of the universe. It just goes on and on. Now, the thing about this is infinity always trumps very small but finite. So somewhere out there in the larger infinite universe, chances are there's somebody else sitting in front of a microphone just like me, same color hair, same name. Everything about that person is the same because there was all of those, uh, the the chances of those, um, of all of those choices that were made, all of those random things that were made between the start of the universe and me sitting here are repeated, have been repeated. The probability that they've been repeated for that far-off person is finite. And because the universe is infinitely large, chances are that that other person exists. In fact, there's an infinite number of other Bens doing this interview. And there's an infinite number of other Bens for whom the universe is slightly different because one or two of the choices that were made were slightly different. Maybe they had something different for breakfast than I did. Maybe, you know, their parents didn't look at each other that, that, that one faithful day. And so the world is essentially the same, except that, that I never existed, right? That makes the, the that makes the universe a lot less lonely, too, because then the idea is that I mean, maybe because of these galactic distances or whatever, how just how vast the, as you say, the universe is, because it's um, an infinite model. It, it kind of, like you say, it trumps all these finite things. That it's maybe if uh, if life uh, is is rare or is or isn't rare, but is is far away, maybe some of that other life is, as you say, like other uses. Even that might sound yeah. silly, but like it's 
I guess that is a really cool, fun possibility to play with. I know. So the neat thing is, if you get any physicist, and you get them, so most of them will say the following. We don't know for sure that the universe is finite, uh, is infinite. We don't know anything about that. They're hedging. And physicists do hedge. Scientists always hedge. And it's important that they do. Because theories get overturned all the time. Uh, working hypotheses for how we understand the universe works, they get overturned all the time. And so a physicist will all, a scientist will always hedge their bets. They'll always hedge their language. But if you get them drunk enough, and maybe enough truth serum into them, you can get them to admit that somewhere out there is a parallel them doing exactly the same thing. Or even a parallel them where they decided not to go into physics, and instead they're a world-renowned architect, or a hobo, or something. In, in a very real sense, in our universe, it seems like it's possible that there's an infinite number of parallel Earths whereupon it's almost exactly the same, slightly different. And, and that's usually and what yeah. we're talking about when you know, like the Flash goes to a world where World War II never happened, right? Except that that's in our universe, as far as this argument goes. Whoa! See, this is the thing. Like the the new age people would be like, would be like, well, because they were quantum entangled, right? But no, you're saying it's an it's it's a similar set arrangement of molecules that have absolutely no interaction with each other. It's just that because this is uh, a finite a finite uh, probability entering into an infinite system, i.e., the universe, means yeah. that this can happen again, and it can happen in different iterations because each of those iterations would be equally as unlikely. However, they would be they were they've been given the chance to occur because there there's room for infinite unlikelihoods. That's right. You know, it's kind of like uh, talking about poker games, right? You have five card studs. Let's let's take it simple, but essentially they're randomly dealing cards. The probability that you get the same hand twice in a poker game is almost infinitesimal, right? The probability that you get um, that any two poker games are played in the same way, right? So imagine imagine you go to poker on Tuesday night and you get dealt like a certain number of hands and you're keeping track. And then the next night, Wednesday night, you go out and you get the same hands in the same order, right? The probability of that happening is infinitesimally small, but it's finite, right? Because the probability, you can calculate the probability of each, getting each hand in turn. What I'm saying is, if there were an infinite number of tables where people were playing poker, there would be definitely some tables where the poker games would be identical in their history. Woo. <laughs> so there, there's, a, there's a reason, I think, that, that, that Einstein gets to, to call like the idea of, of, of quantum stuff spooky, spooky action out of distance. <laughs> yeah. I hope it is. Yeah, sure. Because so, it, it is it just like I, like I said, big ideas that that really interest people. And I, I guess on that point, I wanted to kind of ask you about um, about science literacy in general. So, what role do you think that the the science podcasts and and things of this nature play? Because it, it seems like science literacy is a huge issue um, in in America. And forgive me for for adopting you here, because you are a Canuck, <laughs> you are a Canadian, and I don't know if this is a problem that extends itself into the other regions here in North America, but um, but with things like vaccine denial or with things yeah. like, like creationists, we, we live very close to the creationist museum that's down in Louisville and, or outside of Louisville in Kentucky. And so there were for a number of years, um, 
uh, or a number of months, uh, a big billboard talking about, come see the bugs at the Creation Museum, right before we went to record our podcast, which did not make any of us very happy, I, I don't think. So that's, that is, unfortunately, kind of a real issue. And I think even surprisingly in Europe, um, and this more applied to, to physics concepts, uh, in Europe, there were less people able to identify that uh, uh, helios or heliocentrism than than in America, which was sure. kind of startling because I thought that we were bad, <laughs> but apparently American exceptionalism doesn't even extend to being bad at science concepts. So I, I just the, how I mean that has to play an important role then in in terms of of, of just drawing people in to become more aware of uh, of, of these basic concepts and. Forgive me for for editorializing there, but I do I think it's important, and I just wonder how do we how do we get through the wall of stupid? Essentially, <laughs> it's an unfair question. Um. Well, okay, so if you imagine that this is a cultural clash, that there are some people who um who believe in religion, and there are some people who are believing in science. And they're both willing to go, you know, cast their political vote and, you know, force their children into certain schools and get on the PTA and yell. Um, if, if, you, if you're buying into this narrative that it's a cultural clash like this, one could argue that science has been playing defense a lot, especially in the popular culture, right? I mean, how many more shows do people espouse fantastic, unbelievable things? Like, how many unsolved mysteries are there compared to, you know, a decent documentary series for adults about space? Like, it's, 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 there's way more, people are way more want to hear things that are, that are fantastic. Um, that's, that's, I think that's true, but there's also, it's funny, in, in, like, public policy polling, they find yeah. that the thing that is most absent from television screens that people request the most is science. So sure. I'm not a complete pessimist. I think that, as you say, it's not a need that is being catered to. And you think sure, it's maybe sure. because programmers have been used to the idea of selling the fantastic as something yeah. that, that people will buy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that so, – so, so I don't really buy into this, this cultural conflict dichotomy because what we see here is that science has been playing defense – as long as I've been alive, and even more so these days, where you see, say, the skeptics movement. And the skeptics movement wants it both ways. It wants to say, hey, um, you, should, you should question everything. You shouldn't believe in authority. Arguments from authority aren't valid arguments. And they're right. Uh, an argument from authority isn't a... There's no, there's no strength. There's no logical strength from an argument from authority, right? Uh, they're right, absolutely right. Here's the thing, though. They also want us to listen to scientists. Scientific experts say, hey, uh, you should vaccinate your kids. And then they hear from someone else that, you know, maybe vaccination is kind of crummy. And they say, hey, I got told that I should be skeptical of everything I hear. Skeptical from authority. Here we have authority telling us to vaccinate our kids. Why should I do that? And I think that the deal is that we're... As scientists and scientists, science communicators, we're not playing to our strength. The strength of science, the reason every scientist goes into science is because of this marvelous sense of wonder. The fact that we have so many things figured out. The fact that we have such an awareness of all of the crazy things, all the weird animals and hopping penguins in the world. It's absolutely fantastic. And so we're not really trying to capture 
Uh, we're not really grabbing wonder by the ears and saying, look at all the wonderful things we know. We would rather not. I'm not sure why, but, you know, scientists don't seem to really want to do this kind of engagement generally. Um, but this is the type of engagement that we really need. One, one, one thing you hear all the time is scientists don't know why, blah, 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 blah. It's like a trope in explanations. And like isn't that fantastic is what should follow. <laughs> yeah, well, not even. I mean, so, so they'll say science doesn't know why the sun rises in the east or something like that. Let's and find out. A scientist saying this, it will be a character on a fictional television show. But the deal is science does know this. Science knows almost everything. The reason I started this physics podcast is because the area that we are uncertain about, that we haven't done tests about, the, the, the part of the universe that we have any question about is so tiny compared to the, the part of the universe that we've understood by experimentation and, and careful theory and we made sure the theories are consistent. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. Our world of physics and astronomy is full of wonder. And you don't hear anything about it unless you take, essentially, an undergraduate physics, uh, an upper-level undergraduate physics class. You need to get quite deep into physics before things start getting fabulous, and you realize that there's an, a decent explanation for almost every crazy thing. And so it's not the case that science doesn't know, you know, some, some, some guy, you know, might utter it as a trope in a television show, but they're wrong. We understand so much of the universe, and it's wonderful. People love feeling that wonder. It's like you said, we want more documentaries. We want more David Attenborough documentaries where he goes and hangs out with kangaroos. We want more Neil deGrasse Tyson documentaries where he shows us what the inside of an atom looks like and then explains to us why that has real-world consequences. Like, listen, like, the world is full, like, string theory. You've seen so many string theory documentaries, and they're absolutely useless, because they can't convey any of this wonder, because string theory can't explain anything. <laughs> I think I think the closest it came is there was a good, a fairly good documentary that, that and I brought up that we had the chance to, to talk to him in New York, but that Michi Okaku did about um, kind of the, the, the theories of the, in the way that you just discussed it. Um, I think he did a fairly fairly adequate job of, of, of getting those things across, especially the idea about improbability, the idea of, of being, because of that, um, because of that, and even though he was calling it the multiverse, the idea of, of walking across, I mean, like, the, he, the way that he expressed it is, like, there's a possibility that I could walk across the, the road and see myself on the other side of the road. It could happen. It probably won't, <laughs> but but it, the cool thing is that it could happen, and that I could explain it with math, and that's why it would happen, and then uh, and that's how he explain uh, that's how his his theory was more along the lines of what uh, of what you were uh, what you were talking about, and I thought that was sure. fantastic, and you can imagine why I was so sad that we didn't get the footage back from New York. <laughs> He's literally he was just like, oh well, here's a preview of technology for the next fifty years. I've been in these labs, by the way. Um, so wearable computing, you might want to invest in that. It'll be a $10 billion sector by 2030. Mm. Well, now the world doesn't know that that's the case because they never got to see it. Well, no, they never got to see it, so that was like a year before. And see, that's why Google Glass collapsed, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have our support. But no, I mean, I, I think those those things are fantastic, and people want more of them. And like I said, I'm not a pessimist on these subjects. I think that... That even though, admittedly, I don't think that I'll, I'll come to grasp the um, the the 
mathematics of the the of the equation. I think I can get down that the the Earth in fact rotates around the Sun and not the opposite, <laughs> or yeah. that or that it is a little bit older than six thousand years by a factor of maybe a million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think science has to has to start playing offense. We need to start bringing explanation, showing the world all of the people, and they'll be happy to hear it that we have explanations for things. And the neat thing about this is that once you have a very good, uh, a decent grasp of these explanations, suddenly the reason why, uh, say, vaccines work, it makes sense. It's not just you injecting chemicals and toxins into your kid's blood, right? This is a grim enough topic to, to decide what are we drinking, but... You guys have a great um, segment on the uh, on the science sort of um, podcast that kind of mimics what we do here with our, our kind of beer corner um, that we talk about because four out of the five uh, folks who uh, who are the usual hosts on the podcast and a six who's a uh, is a home brewer and also a biologist so he's our only scientist. <laughs> oh, I appear to have lost you. Recording here. And we're back. <laughs> I'm back right. with, and I'm back with the beer, and I'm doing the annoying voice that David and the rest of my podcasters hate, but they're not here to stop me. <laughs> In an alternate universe, they would be, but oh well. <laughs> In an alternate universe, beer would be easier to open, also, because this is not like a twist-off cat. God lord. <laughs> ah. You know I um. Ah. I used to go to. I, I, I went to a party once with this. There was. This, uh, I, 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 want, I want to describe him as a crazy Dutch guy, but I, he's not crazy. But he's very eccentric. And uh, they they had some beer there, and I'd looked up on the internet the day before how to open a beer with your teeth. And so I was like, oh fun! And then I couldn't get this beer open, so I put it up to my mouth. And the eccentric guy comes over and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, opening a beer with your teeth. And he's like, don't do that. And he points to his mouth. And there's a big chip tooth. And he's like, it doesn't work. The Dutch, now that's applied science, is learning how to open the beer with the teeth. He had a hypothesis, <laughs> he tested it, and unfortunately he found out that the enamel was not strong enough to withstand the impact. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. That's applied science, biology, and physics. <laughs> or if, if he'd done the physics beforehand, he would have found out that he would have chipped his tooth. <laughs> the physics would be difficult. He would say something like, um, assume I have a spherical tooth, and uh, assume that the, the cap on this bottle is infinitely wide. <laughs> well, some beer science. So this is from newhollandbrew.com. Oats bring creaminess and soft mouthfeel to rich, roasty malt character. Pairings, mushrooms, beef, brooming, soft-ripened cheeses, and chocolate. Those all sound good. I don't have any of those. That does sound good. <laughs> I'm very sorry for making you hungry. But we should start a sausage podcast where you just kind of talk about and eat sausages. I would keep up this voice the whole time and just see yeah, how long I could get by. There's actually there's actually a restaurant and a um and a uh, that is very or not a restaurant it's a a market that's very near to me called Klaus's German Sausages and unfortunately they all speak perfectly good English. Oh. I was so disappointed. You want to go into a place like Klaus's and and just be like everybody is speaking completely like uh, like they're from Bavaria and they've never been anywhere else. They were Lederhosen though, right? Yeah, they yeah they were Lederhosen. Actually, they do. Okay. <laughs> Some of them actually do. Yeah. 
But no, we have went on so many different directions that were not physics, and I appreciate you being willing to go there. <laughs> I'm a very stupid person. No, we went, we went from like all this like physics is in, and science inspires such awe, and actually what it made me think of, and probably the thing that I'd like, I would be very remiss because Michio Kaku would not give me the details of his TARDIS design, and you happened to have published a paper uh, where, where you do talk about theoretical space-time geometries and maybe with a little bit of fun tinkering. You yeah. postulate that if X were true and we had this this theoretical particle that maybe doesn't exist, but maybe if it exists, we yeah. could do we could do some fun things. So what? How how would your time travel device function? How do, how would yeah. that work? Right. It's a, okay. So first off, uh, hedging. I haven't published it. Oh, you haven't published. Uh, I apologize because yeah. I read the abstract that you sent, which I thought was really it's, cool. That's right. It's a, it's a, I've, I've published it on the archive. It's it's called a preprint archive. It's a place that people put. Uh, papers on if they want other people to see it, but maybe they're not ready to publish okay, it. Okay, I apologize for leaking the plans. I haven't done no, that. it's okay. <laughs> I, I wrote it with, some friend, with a friend of mine um, for the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who and put it out around then uh, last year, last October. And it was... Um, it was fun. So, so the the idea here is, I, I tried to come up with a space time where you have a box, and the box goes in a circle in time and space, which is more difficult to do than you'd think. So, it, there is a speculative, really fun side to the type of physics that I do. It's called the, the physics is called general relativity. It's, it's Einstein's theory of gravity, Einstein's theory of curved space-time. Um, and so, oh, for the last 50 to 70 years, people have been writing speculative papers about the possibility of, say, time travel. Um, and uh, there, uh, a man named Miguel Alcubierre uh, wrote a paper in the 90s, I think, called The Warp Drive, where he figured out a way to make a space-time geometry that it was, a, it was called a bubble geometry. You surround your ship with a bubble, and then the bubble can travel faster than the speed of light, even though it's usually not possible for anything to travel faster than the speed of light in Einstein's theory. And so it was really fun. And one thing you can do with these bubbles is you can kind of bridge them together in a way to kind of kludgy get uh, and go back in time. And so I said, well, what if it was a lot more elegant? What if it was just a bubble that went in a circle in space-time? So some of the time it's going forward in time, some of the time it's going back in time. And this is fun because it, it had a variety of attributes that I'm still playing with. You need, um, so the deal is that I'd like to publish it one day, but I'm still kind of playing with the details. Uh, the, uh, it looks, for instance, like you can't make it in our current universe. It has a certain type of singularity that just kind of ruins everything for everybody. I mean, at least that's a preliminary result. I'm still playing with it. Um, but yeah, I, I read that the warp drive was actually really destructive. It would essentially, like, destroy all matter that it came into touch with in, the, in terms of the bubble. No, no, the warp drive is very gentle. Uh, it's very gentle? Stuff, yeah, uh, stuff hits the bubble and just kind of floats around it or through it. The destructive thing about the warp drive is when it starts or stops, when it starts... It's kind of like a snowplow, uh, Alcubierre's warp drive. It, um, it's like, imagine there's like a big truck on a gravel road with a big plow in front of it. Um, so his warp drive kind of gets away from needing to move faster than this. It, it, it 
it, it, it lets the person inside the bubble move faster than the speed of light, because the person inside the bubble is sitting still. It's the bubble that's moving faster than the speed of light. Um, and so particles, it'll as it moves through space, if it could move through space, if, as it moves through space, it encounters, you know, little particles, dust, radiation, um, and that kind of sticks to the front of the bubble. And then when the bubble, you know, you reach Alpha Centauri or wherever you want, and you're trying to slow your bubble down, um, all of the stuff on the front of your bubble shoots forward at much, you know, in gamma radiation. You end up with a tremendous amount of radiation. You'd cook anything, any planet you were aiming towards, a tremendous weapon. So, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it wouldn't necessarily be that harmful to, to get hit by one of these things. It's the starting and stopping of the bubble that really kills it all. So you're oh, saying, yeah. <laughs> so you're saying we might we might build this thing to travel to an uh, like a no, near. We're not building it, well, we're not up. building it, but yeah. but if if this were built and it was used to try and get to like a habitable like a like an Earth-like planet elsewhere, um, we would get there and then it would no longer be Earth-like because we would have cooked it. If you aren't careful, yeah, I think you need to steer slow down, speed up, steer away from the planet you're mm. you're about to thing, and then use regular rockets to get down to the planet. Get closer to the planet if you don't want to melt everything on it um but yeah so the problem with alcubierre's warp drive is the same as the part problem with my tardis my uh box that goes in a circle in space and time uh, and the problem well one of the problems is you need a type of matter that's gravitationally repulsive um and as you can see nothing on earth is gravitationally repulsive you'd give it a very cool comic book name it's the anti-graviton yeah, well, I think Rocky Bullwinkle, Rocky and Bullwinkle already have, right? Oh, they probably uh, have, they, yeah. Yeah, it's Upsidasium. Upsidasium, yeah. Oh my gosh. Sorry, you wouldn't, you I, wouldn't go with Unobtainium? <laughs> no, no, kids, kids these days never watch Rocky and Bullwinkle, and so they don't know how many horrible puns were in that show. It's important to refer to all of the horrible puns as often as you can. Anyway, I I, so, yeah. I was raised on on the uh, those good shows as well as Peabody good. and Sherman. So because I had good parents, I'm just saying. High quality parents. Oh yes. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that that is exciting about that is that you wrote it at the 50th anniversary, and we were talking about like science outreach, and I think that's something where Doctor Who has actually done a fairly decent job. I don't know if you saw the special about the the, the physics of Doctor Who that was hosted by um, a doctor who who he gave he went to the the royal. Um, I'm, I'm going to butcher these places, uh, but he went to the, the, the lecture room where Michael Faraday did his lectures at the, the sure. British Science Institute and uh, gave his famous Christmas lectures. And, of course, it came out, I think, around Christmas as well. Um, right. And the idea was, or, well, I guess it was November, so it couldn't have been. <laughs> but but he, he gave it, and he's talking about it, and at the end of it, I mean, he interacts with, the, with, the, with Matt Smith, with the doctor, and then he's looking out in the room, and he's like, the reason I came by is because there's a little girl in the, in the audience who's going to hear all this stuff about, about time travel and being faster than the speed of light. And even though it's not possible today, she's going to be the one who discovers it because she got inspired by... Um, by the things that she heard and she saw here and thought that science was something that she could she could pick up and, and do. And yeah, I thought, yeah. that's such a brilliant thing, because that, I mean, I think that is very much in the spirit of what he was doing with those lectures 150 years ago. And you've already said just how much it is that we've learned in that space of time is, is tremendous. It's yeah. absolutely tremendous. You know, back then, people thought, I mean, after Faraday, a little bit after Faraday, around the turn of the 20th century, 
people thought that science was done. They thought that we had, we had discovered quite a few things uh, between kind of Famously, Lord Kelvin is just like, well, we've invented everything useful. Get rid of the we patent have, office. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so we had an explanation for why gases behave the way they do. It involves atoms, right? We had We'd even discovered superconducting fluids at the turn of the century. Yeah, we, we'd understood um, all of these thermodynamic questions that were bugging us forever. Thermodynamics was a very complicated thing, and we came up with a very elegant underlying explanation called statistical mechanics, where everything is just little billiard balls bouncing around together, and it's their statistical ensemble that gains the attributes of thermodynamics, like the conservation of energy and increasing entropy and stuff. Absolutely elegant. And then we'd, and then, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> they'd, 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 they'd unified all of the theories of electromagnetism into Maxwell's equations, which were absolutely fantastic, and those predicted the attributes of light. Suddenly we understood how matter works, because we had statistical mechanics describing thermodynamics in terms of Newton's laws, and we also had these fantastic laws about, you know, where light comes from, and how light is related to electric charges. It was a wonderful time. Uh, and then it was all wrong. I mean, it wasn't all wrong. It was right, and importantly right. But uh, it know, wasn't a full understanding. Yeah. So and one, I, an, yeah, another thing that you'd mentioned on the the science sort of podcast is the idea of simple things like sometimes you can be right and wrong at the same time. You can say that the Earth is uh, is round, and it's not perfectly round. It's an oblique spheroid. Is is how is how I think uh, Ryan came out and said it because that's true. <laughs> but it's yeah. like, so you can have an unperfect understanding of something, but it's still importantly right. And I think that's yeah. such a cool thing about science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. A, a lot of times we're so obsessed with nickel and diming people, making sure, now, like I said, scientists hedge their bets, and they do that for a professional reason. Uh, scientists need to keep uh, and, and be seen to keep an, an open mind about things. The explanation that we have is only our best explanation. And so a lot of the time when we hear people explaining and we're teaching things to people, we try to force other people to hedge their knowledge. And we, we need to – we try to force everybody to understand things as perfectly as we scientists who have gone to grad school for four years and spent you know, a full-time job studying these books uh, and experiments. We want them to have the same type of understanding as us. And instead of just saying, you know what, if, if your understanding at the end of this episode is, if you understand that the world is spherical instead of flat, we've taken a big jump forward, you know, and that's good enough for now. And then, you know, think, thinking about science education is not necessarily getting it all right, but improving the person who's viewing or listening's picture of how, it's, how it all works. And I think that, you know, take it easy, scientists. Just tell them about how much you love the stuff. People love it when you few scientists talk about how much they love things. Happy scientists are happy. That was a thing. Yeah. When people were so excited when the uh, when Curiosity landed on Mars and, like, made Babak Fredosi a thing because they're like, oh, look how happy these scientists are. Happy scientists <laughs> are happy. Aw. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, one oh. of them has a mohawk? We need to interview him immediately. The mohawk guy. Yeah, <laughs> what a genius. I think he'd had it the whole time, though. I think he, he actually has, like, different mohawks for different missions or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. No. I th it's not, what, one really fun thing uh, that you see in science is that they're, like, echelons of smart people. 
Um, so, you know, there's like people who are kind of clever. I'm in the kind of clever echelon. Eh, if you don't do everything right, you kind of shrug. And then there's like the science jerk. And uh, usually they're smarter than people like me. Very smart people, but also jerks. Like huge jerks. I would hope that he would fall somewhere in between, because he is literally a rocket scientist, no, but no, also does but not appear to be a jerk. There's an echelon above that, where they're really, really, really smart, really capable. Usually they're polymaths. Usually they're actually great at more than one thing. They'll be a fantastic instrument player, as well as a fantastic painter, as well as a fantastic scientist and physicist. Or maybe they write novels, who knows, right? They're usually multi-talented. And they're the nicest people in the world. The a car- little bit eccentric sometimes, yeah. but just so nice. And, and there's, there's nothing warms the cockles of my heart like meeting one of these people who is just exceptionally smart. Smarter than everybody else in their own class of intelligence. And also generous, kind, interesting, clever, accepting, warm. They're there. They're, they're these people at the top. The people at the top of the pyramid are just the nicest people. This, I have to go back because I don't have an experience with many of the smartest people in the world. So <laughs> the only my only frame of reference is, again, just like the hour with, with Michio Kaku in the room. is just like, it's like as soon as he'd been wanting to talk about science literacy and, and political will a lot. He'd been like leading it in every single time that somebody asked him a question. He's like, well, you know, we're cutting science funding. Did I mention that we're cutting science funding? I know you didn't ask me about that. We're cutting science funding. And it yeah. was the week before Fermilab closed, or, or, they, yeah. or they had announced that. And they're like, well, we've got a week left. And I, so I asked him about that, and he immediately is going on about, um, he just lit up. And he's just like, yes, somebody asked me the right question. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a super science I couldn't have asked anything, I think, more, more in-depth about something that would have been a field that he's actually working on. Because I think he's also in what you do in terms of general relativity is, is kind of what he focuses he's on. He's a string theorist, or string th- Or, sorry, string theorist, which is yeah. different, but different, but the same, same, same question, different idea, <laughs> I guess. Same... He's on the same frontier as me, but he's walking in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the um, he's he's walking in eleven dimensions, so he's walking with a with thirteen. I don't know, twenty two feet. That's really difficult to coordinate. <laughs> but so yeah, they have. Uh, but yeah, and then he lit up and just seemed super, super, super nice at the same time, and was was cracking jokes at the same time, and also refused to give me his TARDIS class. Yeah, no, you you have to have a little bit of sympathy for these, you know, like uh, Michikaku or Neil deGrasse Tyson, these people at the at the top of their game in terms of public figures for science because you can tell that they what they really want to do is express their enjoyment and fascination and enthusiasm for the subject um but they also because they're at the very top they need to be very careful because they can't they can't just say anything uh everybody will believe it well no not just their words have, have political implications right um and it's under it's um it's maybe a little bit not um, responsible if you don't use that power responsibly. So you need to you need to be aware that lots of people are going to ask you lots of weird questions. But if you're on camera, you have to kind of stay on message. Um, and I, I I can't help but think that it kind of takes it out of it a little bit. It kind of takes the fun out of it because you, you instead of Instead of saying, I want to convey all of this enthusiasm and this understanding, you have to say, what political message are they getting out of this? Right now, uh, science funding is being cut. We need to 
make people aware of this. They're only going to be aware of it if somebody of my stature talks about it. So instead of talking about something really fun, you have to talk about science funding. He, he managed know. to thread the needle, I think. But it was one of those things where he was able to, to put several several things together because I, I think that they're apolitical political issues. I think the idea is, like, science good. Science make you more competitive in world. Make Neanderthal brain make lots of money if done well. Yeah. So yeah. please, so these things should be apolitical. People being good at science in America is like a big, almost like, I don't want to say jingoistic, but like it's, it's, it's a big thing. The idea is like if you believe in, in this idea that people sell you about American exceptionalism or whatever, then you should be ashamed of being 17th or 32nd in, in science literacy or in, or in certain aspects of these things. Or you should want to invest. You should want to say, hey, H-1B visas, they're a thing. They're not <laughs> this genius visa that he that he mentions in the interview is like I still wish we had the footage <laughs> is is important and so those that he managed to talk about immigration and science literacy and and why NASA should be getting funding and talk about older and about scientists doing better at these things as well asking for funding in a better way talked to, he talked about the the project that would have, that um, in in Texas that never happened the uh, super massive super collider I think it was called. Yeah. Or, so he yeah, talked. Yeah, he talked just... about that, and he talked about the 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 space telescope, um, uh, the Hayden, or is it the, or James Webb, the space telescope, and and sure. about the difficulties there. And he's saying like, be better at, at at requesting these things, be more honest about it. But but he's like, but by the way, at any price tag, these things are impressive and more important than you think that they are. <laughs> it's like if you can, it's like how do you assign these things a value? And so. I don't know. It's like, to me, those things shouldn't be political. I don't feel like anything that we've talked about really should be a political issue. It's like, get your kids vaccinated. Why? Because they might die. <laughs> it's a really, it's not the weight of the issue is like, or do something about climate change. Why? Because it will ruin the global economy and make the world less livable. Like that, those things don't seem particularly political maybe there's a political argument for say something like like space travel but at the same time that's also a similar argument where you're saying like this will lead to the species living longer yeah, <laughs> this will lead to i mean every dollar it, it spent at nasa has pays like monstrous dividends investing in, in space technology is just this huge uh stimulus for the economy it's like ridiculous but you know uh, i think I agree with you that these things shouldn't be political. They seem like no-brainers to me, as, as rude as it is to say that something is a no-brainer. But I think that, you know... And you're, and you're a Canadian, so we got to talk about Canadian stuff that was political. But you know what? Our American listeners don't care because of Canada. Oh, yeah, but I mean, like, any, any indicator, any indicator that you can use to circle and say, these are the people in our tribe, these are the people out of our tribe... It shouldn't be exclusionary at all. It's, it's something you can use for politics. It's unfortunate, but that's the case. I mean, you could probably start a political party arguing horrible murder and piracy, and you could probably get people to say, yeah, well, it looks like I'm with the murderous pirate party. Uh, I, I think it's crazy. I think it's... Arr, they promised me beer and plunder. Yeah, <sighs> I mean, it's disingenuous on the part of the... I mean, it was weird, and we left, um, and then we had some beer. We've done a lot of things. <laughs> so, but but to kind of close, um, I guess uh, I had a had another question that was related to, to science literacy because I thought this would be be an interesting point. 
um, in terms of where these problems come from, because even those folks who are visiting the Creation Museum without a, a, a shred of irony, because they actually do have great animatronics, it's kind of almost worth going, <laughs> because, because of how expensive these dinosaur models are. They're actually quite fantastic. But, the, um, but it's just that that requires a level of technological literacy that is quite significant. You can't, you can't make an animatronic dinosaur if you don't have, have a great degree of, of application in terms of, of your knowledge of, of science or your, te- your knowledge of technology at the very least. And so I wonder, do, do you think that technologic literacy, that all of these people who are spouting many of these beliefs, certainly the vaccine deniers, probably have an iPhone on them and probably have an array of apps and probably utilize a, a lot of technology in their daily lives. And do you think that maybe technologic literacy is kind of replacing, um, replacing uh, science literacy to a certain extent because we, we go without having to understand certain, certain things because those things are done for us by, by devices. I mean, do you think that maybe technologic literacy in this day and age is kind of obscuring scientific literacy? Uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, he, so Jacob Stump is one of the co-hosts. He's, he's, on, he's one of the paleo pals from the, from the Science Sort of Show. And he's also on, um, he has his own podcast called Technically Speaking. And awesome show. That, he was telling me that a lot of his engineer friends are also climate change deniers. So arguably the most technologically literate people are also the most scientifically illiterate um, and I think that that's so, – so I think that, that what you asked is kind of a good question because with technological literacy goes kind of goes kind of a sense of mastery. You know, Socrates was always up in arms about how people would assume if they were good at one – or had, had knowledgeable expertise in one field, they thought it meant that they were an expert in everything. Um and I think the same thing can be said with technological literacy. We spend so much time becoming literate in how to use computers and how to use cell phones and stuff. We kind of get the impression that we are also masters of the universe when, in fact, we are not. I think it's kind of a blind spot in human psyche. I'm not sure what we can do about it other than make fantastic podcasts and videos about science that you know, capture everybody's attention. The, the world's going to be really exciting in about 15 years because mass media is dying, right? I mean, there's no one channel, one TV show that everybody watches. And, and the generation of people, these, these, I think they're called millennials, the people who are less than 22. Uh, Whoa, are, I don't get to be a millennial? Damn it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how the... I, I mean, like, I'm not... I think I should be in the millennial generation. I'm kind of... My, I, I kind of fell between the cracks there. But yeah, I mean, You're so, at the very least in Gen Y. You're not one of those fucking Gen Xers. Well, I think they call the Gen Y um, millennials. I think they're they're synonyms. I'm not sure. I've heard that they're but actually lo- they're shortening the distance between generations now because of technology. So it kind of almost fits into my question. There's there's now they're kind of subgrouping I think millennials into Gen E and Gen I. So like I like I devices, people who have always been connected to the internet and always had it as an accessible tool and don't know what the weird dial-up sound is. That is just yeah. an odd thing to them. And so that really is a big cultural change because they've always had access to that cultural information that we didn't have. And so yeah. we did have a, a a different set 
I mean, of, of foundational experiences. And I think that is kind of cool from a sociological perspective. Like, we were net literate. We're netizens, I guess, is what they call it. So I think that's what defines a millennial. I think yeah. that is what des- defines a millennial, is, like, the idea that yeah. we've always been around during the Internet age, or at least we had access to computer, we're maybe computer literate. And these yeah. people are, like, iDevice literate. They've been used to the mobile Internet, whereas I still don't get it. I'm, I yeah. feel like they're getting on my Internet lawn, and I want to shake things at them. Yeah, and yet you make a podcast. I know, because I'm a, I'm a fossil. Apparently, they yeah. do think I don't know what the Vine is or the Tumblers. No. <laughs> yeah. I can't tumble. No, I can't even like do a podcast. cartwheel, damn it. Podcasting is one of these things for the for the I generation, but yeah, you know these people they don't. Um, there's no one television show that they all watch. They they're on the internet. Each person kind of does whatever interests them. You look at how like music has kind of stagnated since like the 1990s. It's like why are we still hearing about Madonna? Why are we still hearing about various artists who you know? showed up in the early 2000s instead of even though they're, they're they've been around for 10 years that's like a, a that's an ice age in, in in terms of uh pop music it's because you know people have access to what interests them specifically now yeah they don't have to listen to the radio they can listen to their own channel on uh on uh you know the fancy device that plays them their klezmer music and their uh, tibetan yak singing and they, they're happy with that and why shouldn't they be uh so in this there are 700 people in vietnam who really like hearing about canadian politics yeah right we are catering exactly. to those 700 people exactly so i think in this new era um making something like a science a science podcast or uh, a video blog about science there's lots of people doing that and they're doing exceptional work like the the minute science guy um what's his name henry something um he was, on, he, was, he was one of the titanium physicists. He came in and did an expert on the show. Henry Reich, neat guy. Or even like web comics that involve science, like uh, Zach Wienersmith and Ryan North do. Um, it, it all adds up. He also um, does Adventure Time, so I mean, he's got a leg up on all of us. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> he gets he gets the tween he can get the tweens interested in paleontology. That's right. No, it's it's we're we're, we're about to enter a whole crazy new paradigm about where content and decent explanations uh, and fascinating material are going to be the king instead of, you know, uh, having to stick to a certain message or find out, uh, you know, you, you want to explain something, but you need to come up with an explanation that, only, that, that will appeal to both the California soccer moms and the Louisiana housewives or whatever. I don't know. Like, like we're, we're entering a whole new era of um, content. And I'm really excited to to see mass media die for that reason. Right, because tru- the, the world's going to become really interesting. Okay, truly the time. last question then, um, because okay. we're talking about the death of mass media. Yeah, mass you're media. Actually, no, no. <laughs> Although, um, uh, yeah, that would be the most interesting way to end the podcast. No, I, I, I think I'm, I'm deeply biased. Fifteen minute rant about Canadian politics. Uh, tell me about it.
I had to let that one lie. I'm sorry. I couldn't get it out there. <laughs> I hadn't done it the entire time. We had a 20-minute conversation about Canadian politics, and I didn't make any Canadian jokes, I think because I'm so inured to them. But the um, but yeah, is talking about mass media, mass media actually honored in a big way to science movies last night at the Oscars. Um, so Eddie Redmayne won for Best Actor um, for his role as Stephen Hawking, as a physicist. And oh, in really? that in that for the theory of everything and in that film even though it's very much about i mean his his life and about his struggle it's also very much about his theory it's called the theory of everything and it's about i mean to to a large extent it's about him deciding about about black holes and about uh about that area that 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 earned him so much scientific acclaim and also yeah. to and and seeing many of his contemporaries in the in the in the movie um who are portrayed by great actors uh kind of giving science showing science is sexy and so doing some of the things that we were talking about in this podcast uh, and so that got the high the best stage that possibly it could have it could have received by beginning and then also interstellar won for best special effects and the acceptance speech was done by the physicist who was um who was the oh, consultant so kip thorne so Kip Thorne got to got to got to talk about Interstellar and got to talk about the science and we were, I I kind of wanted to talk about him maybe a bit when we were talking about bulk universes or bulk beings because that's what made Interstellar a thing even though it in a weird way is kind of laughable and because of the McConaughey <laughs> because yeah, right. because McConaughey is a bulk being man I know right that's the the bulk bulk McConaughey always drove a Lincoln Continental I mean before you paid him. He drove a Lincoln Continental. Even though he's fifth dimensional being, he can go anywhere in the universe, he chooses to buy a Lincoln Continental. And I think that, that shows integrity. But yeah, the, that was also honored. And so that, in a, in a way, was a, was a great vehicle for, for people who, um, who would not otherwise have, have had any experience with physics in the past year. To, to go into a movie theater and see these things that they assume were kind of trippy and new age and say, like, no, these have actual science foundations. And, and oh, so man, the science of Other, other uh, than, other than like having to get a physical representation of him surviving in a in a singularity, but I guess you could make the argument for narratively that because it's designed, and we're doing spoilers, but it's the end of the podcast, and they're used to spoilers anyway, that it was designed by future humans for this purpose. So it's kind of like an ontological paradox. It's designed for this purpose, so that's why he survives, and so it's oh, not as laughable. He, he wasn't in a singularity like that crazy, the crazy crystal room made up of. He was in. He was in a construct by the bulk beings. I guess that's yeah. That's right. So they plucked him out of who? Yeah. No. Uh, there was um. How do I say it? Uh. The. It seems like a very. You know, kind of. It seems contact. fantastical. It seems science fictiony, and to a certain yeah, it extent, it is. Science fiction. Yeah. But it's also no. physics, <laughs> which is crazy yeah, to me. Yeah. All you need is the ability to. It's you. Um, it's adding the quantum. It's adding the story for the quantum math that, that you guys are looking for. <laughs> you all. All you need is the matter that's gravitationally repulsive, and that's essentially what they discovered the ability to do at the center of the black hole, right? So the robot went down in there and found it, and then he faxed it back to humans on Earth, and from that they were able to do everything, including I guess travel in the bulk, um, including. And it's a close, and it's a it's a neat closed system. It's an ontological paradox. It creates itself, 
because because if it's uh, if it's like you say it's an infinite system and we have a finite number or finite probability of a thing occurring, and sure. so I think they just apply that. They just say say okay, well we we exist as this extra dimensional being in the future, and so because of that we have these new possibilities. And no, to, no, you're not, yeah, you're to not get to that point, yeah. as soon as you can travel faster than the speed of light, as soon as you can travel faster than the speed of light, you have to start thinking four-dimensionally. Yeah, a you're a four-dimensional being. Because you get these ontological paradoxes. Or no, we're, I guess you're, you become a fifth-dimensional being because we are fourth-dimensional beings. We exist in, in space-time. It's just the idea of something who can stand above space-time and, like they say in the movie, just decide to walk across, see it like a canyon. Yeah, it's not, how should it's, I put it, um, what we're seeing, the, the, the cause, the loop of, there was a loop of cause and effect in that movie, um, which was entirely consistent with the laws of physics. The laws of physics as we understand them, as we've interpreted them when we're trying to figure out whether or not time travel is possible. If that doesn't blow anybody's mind, I don't know what will. <laughs> That's fantastic. Telling you about how I made a TARDIS before. If I if I knew we were going to talk about this, I would have emphasized my TARDIS space time a little bit more, because you can a whole bunch of fantastic things can be done, but you have to lose this idea that cause um, always precedes effect, because if you can travel in time, cause or the the effect can precede the cause as long as everything is self consistent, as long as you have a big circle in space-time, you're permitted to do these plot things. And so the wonderful thing about this plot was it seemed through the entire movie like it was, oh, pardon the phrase, woo. It seemed like there were there were ghosts and stuff. But what it was actually doing was he was interacting with himself in a self-consistent way. And Kip Thorne, man, he was the guy who pioneered that type of thinking. Absolutely fantastic. Nobody's better than Kip Thorne to have helped on that movie. When it comes to black holes, Kip Thorne's the guy. When it comes to time machines, Kip Thorne's the guy. Absolutely fantastic. So I, I really, they could have just called the Oscars like the Black Hole Awards, at least for those two. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was a big year for general relativity this year. Hey listeners, this is Micus, creator of the kind of epic theme song, Zombie Kids. If you're interested in finding out more about my music, you can check me out at micusmusic.com. Also, I am on iTunes, Facebook, and SoundCloud. You can look me up as Micus Music, and that's M-I-K-U-S, and you know the rest. Alright, peace out everyone, keep listening. And I think that is a, a really good note to end on, and I appreciate your time so much. You've given us a, a little bit over an hour and a half of your time, and that's just fantastic. And and I think physics is fantastic, and science is fantastic, and I hope even Canadian politics is fantastic <laughs> to those five listeners who will really be into it. Just so, again, thank you so, so much.